Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan, and thank you so much for tuning in to share our version of Asian American stories. Today on episode 162, I share a story with the amazing, the one and only Cal Penn. Some of you might know him for his acting on House or Harold and Kumar. Others might know him as a White House staffer. And most recently, some of you may know him as the author of You Can't Be Serious. Had a chance to sit down with Cal to talk about all of that and the lessons that he's learned and what he wants to share with you to inspire the next generation of Asian American leaders. Check out our brand new branding and also check out our brand new merch at bit.ly slash DAA shop. Thanks for tuning in. And here now is my conversation with Cal. Cal, welcome to the Asian Americans. I am super duper so excited to talk to you. Um, how, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, by the way. I'm, I'm excited for our conversation. Big shout out to our friend Gary, uh, who Gary Lee, yes. who worked, who you work with at the White House, and I shared time yeah. with at USC, um, who put these things into motion a few months ago, and I am so really excited to talk to you. Uh, obviously, I, I think there is um, for myself and for my friends that I've told in office, there is the the public figure factor of we sort of know his story, um, but you know, having read or heard your book, um, and if you haven't, I actually encourage you to uh, listen to the book because I think memoirs or better uh, consumed with the author's audio. But I, I think it's an incredible story of you've made some decisions in your life that we'll talk about that so many of us are so fearful to make. And I think you yeah. made two big ones, which is going into entertainment against the backdrop of the stereotypical expectations of a career from our Asian families. Sure. And then after you achieved what everybody thought was the top of the ladder, you said, <laughs> pause, <laughs> and I'm going to go make little to no money doing work that I really want to do in, in an extremely, again, very public fashion, because when you sure. work, um, obviously, um, you know, in the Office of Public Engagement, it is the public face of, of the White House. And so let, let's start with your, your background. Um, and I guess before we start, I, I, I do want to just chat about your name, right, which, which yeah. we will get to in the, in the name change. But Cal Penn is a your name that you go by publicly for, for acting name. in public regions, yeah. street name, correct. Yeah, yeah. But um, what, what, is, what, what is your born name and how did Cal Penn come about? Sure, yeah. My, no, my real name is Kalpen Modi, K-A-L-P-E-N, uh, and the last name is Modi, M-O-D-I. Uh, and the, the, screen, <laughs> the screen name came about uh, through, it was really a late night, um, like a 3 a.m. <laughs> convo with, with some of my college friends. So j j just to be clear, uh, uh, Kalpen or Kalpen, uh, as a lot of folks pronounce it, was often shortened. The Cal, the first three letters, uh, not so different from you know Joseph becoming Joe or or any sort mm -hmm. of abbreviations. Um, but the the screen the screen name version of it it was it was like three in the morning. I want to say my either my second or third year at UCLA as an undergrad, um, and my my college buddies were by the way none of whom are uh, were theater majors. They were all like finance, biology, anthropology. You know nothing nothing in the arts. Uh, field and they w one guy was like, "Hey man, how come you don't have a screen name?" I'm like, oh, what do you mean? They go, you know, like Whoopi Goldberg's name isn't Whoopi Goldberg. Mm. I'm like, what? What do you mean? <laughs> and, <laughs> and my friend was like, "Just think about it. Her name is not Whoopi Goldberg. It's Karen Johnson." And I was like, "Oh yeah, I guess her name wouldn't be Whoopi Goldberg." But I guess I never questioned that. Mm. Uh, and he was like, "Yeah, you know, I mean, could you imagine if she went by Karen Johnson? It just she wouldn't be as memorable." Uh, compared to the name she goes by. And then we just, that unleashed this whole other, you know, another friend was like, oh yeah, you know, Chevy Chase's real name is Cornelius. Um, and so <laughs> <laughs> there was, 
there was a conversation. I mean, this was what, 1997, right? Like early. Right. So, uh, so the convo was twofold. It was, uh, don't you want to come up with a catchy screen name? And then the second piece of that is, would a catchy screen name help me get an agent? Because at that point, I had been trying for two or three years to land an agent. I had headshots. I had my resume. But um, it was an uphill climb. And to be clear, it's an uphill climb for, for any actor when they're starting out. But right. um, I was getting little hints of the, the barrier to entry being a little higher uh, you know, because of what I look like and ethnicity and race and, and, and all those conversations. So, so for all those reasons, we're just kind of like, huh, well, what should my screen name be? Uh, and the same, uh, I'll say this lovingly, because I know you have college friends who are mutual friends of ours, but the, you know, uh, my idiot college friends were like, <laughs> what about Cal Pacino? <laughs> I was like, all right, guys, all right, let's not do all this. Uh, so that, that, that went down this rabbit hole for like a half hour. And then we just sort of thought, well, what if I what if I actually just split my first name in half um, and use that on my on my headshots? Mm. And it just so happened that I was I had saved up the previous six months to get a new round of headshots. Which I'm glad you mentioned the audiobook. Uh, so if anybody's listening listening to the book, just Google like old Calpen headshot because you you get the joy of making fun of me if you have the hard copy of the book. So if you buy the paperback, you'll see this photo. But otherwise, just Google. It's like it's it's late '90s. Like wannabe Luke Perry nine zero two one zero kind of nonsense uh, is basically what it looked like. So the <laughs> so I'm that was for the book for the people that are like, what what is Jerry shuffling about? But uh... <laughs> it, it's easy to find. It's easy to find. But the, but so th- those were the headshots I was getting that weekend. And when the pictures came back, and everything was still analog at that point for for the most part. So I put Cal Penn on the on those headshots, and within a few weeks. Uh, got a call from an agent who ultimately signed me. And so, uh, you know, obviously, you know, it's hindsight is you never know why uh, that headshot worked. I I don't want to put undue Mm. importance on a name. Uh, It could have been the photo. It could have just been the time. But certainly, you know, it it also may have been a factor, whether it was catchy, whether it just was easier for somebody they felt more accessible by by a name that they they thought was more familiar. Who knows? Um, But I I never changed it legally because it was just sort of, uh, I wanted it to be a screen name, not a, yeah. uh, you know, not, not a legal name, but that, that's the story. That's the story. Behind well, it. I, you know, thank you for sharing that. And um, I, I looked at your old headshots and you got the Asian nineties split down the middle. That's that, right. You're welcome. That uh, my, my <laughs> white coworker once called Mickey Mouse hair. And I was like, oh. that's offensive. Cause it, oh. you know, if you, if you're our age, you, you know what we're talking about, but you know, names are sort of fascinating to me because, you know, I wasn't born Jerry. And I think we talk about this a lot in our own communities, right? Like, yeah. what is in a name? Why? Uh, generally East Asian, but our parents give us Roman, you know, English names. Um, yeah. I think South Asians are very fascinating in that because, thanks colonialism, but uh, English is more, the, the, the spoke language and the English yeah. versions of our given names are what we're born with, right. that most of my South Asian friends keep their, you know, cultural names and they just spell it in English. But, yeah. You know, yeah. Mike, John, Chris, Sarah, Esther are not Asian, Korean, Chinese names. Right. And so, you know, how much do we have to change our names to not face racism, at least on paper? By the way, until- Esther Esther may as well be at this point. As, sure, it is. <laughs> white, white folks are not being named Esther anymore. <laughs> Unless you're 80 years old. Um, uh, I have too many Esther Kims and Esther Parks in my, in my friend list, as, as many other people do as well. You know, but I think it's fascinating that, you know, again, you don't want, you don't never know, number one, but two, yeah. you sort of hope and you pray that that's not the reason why, right? That, yeah, of course. Um, yeah. But I know for a fact, 
uh, maybe not for a fact, I would assume that uh, being in business for myself and being a public speaker and having a presence on the internet, like a Jerry Wan is going to be a lot more profitable than a Chong Hun Wan because discrimination and bias still exists in this country, whether we want to believe it or not, or whether we agree with it or not, it's, it sort of is. And and who knows that casting director may have still called you under Gop and Modi. For sure. Yeah. But would, would you still be who you are? And we don't know because we don't get to live alternate versions of our lives. You, you don't know. And I think what's wonderful about, about the, how nuanced that conversation is, is there are, uh, there are so many actors working and aspiring who have always used their birth names and many who have never used their birth names uh, or folks who were a hybrid like mine where I started out using my birth name mm. and then came up with a, uh, with a screen name. So it, it, what's so, sort of great about that too, is you see, and we'll, we'll get to this, I'm sure, but the, the last 10 years, especially of increased diversity on screen and behind the behind the camera uh, from folks of sort of every background is not something I think I could have even imagined 20 years ago, um, you know, or even even like a little less than 20 years ago when the first Harold and Kumar came out. The fact that like you turn on Netflix, mm. Amazon, Hulu, and it's like how many Asian American folks are, are on those things. It's wonderful. So. So I think you're right. I think it's it's impossible to go back. There's no magic time machine to be like, okay, yeah. what was the reason? Um, but it's certainly worth considering as we move forward. And and I hope um, you know for my kids and that generation coming forward that they don't have to think about stuff like this. Even yeah, same. Um, and it's even for you know white folks like Martin Sheen. And, and the reason why this is so fresh, like he came out two weeks ago and saying, "I regret not using my given name," yeah. which is Ramon Estevez. Well, what? Middle America would have accepted the same characters, the same person as Ramon Estevez with the foreigner connotations that come with yeah, versus yeah. Martin Sheen. And we just don't know. But even him, you know, and, and he said, I like you, he didn't change his name legally, right. like outside of Hollywood, he was Ramon. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting because for him, at least there's like, you know, his son kept his stage name, last name yeah. because of the association. But um, very, very fascinating. But uh, for yeah. I, I always, it, it's interesting that, um, I, I mean, I think all of us are huge Martin Sheen fans. Uh, I had the privilege of working with him on a, on a project a few years ago and he was just the most gracious, kind guy you'll, you'll ever meet. Uh, the, the phrase regret is something that I, I try not to use and I, it comes up every so often. You know, it's funny. It comes up actually with, uh, sort of the younger generation of, uh, mm. Asian American performers and it'll come up in one of two senses. Either people will say, uh, hey, I read some quotes of yours about stereotyping, about your views on uh, The Simpsons and the character of Apu. I couldn't disagree more. You're the reason we can't have nice things anymore. There's nothing wrong with Apu. There's nothing wrong, with, right? Like there's that school of brown folks. And it's like, okay, well, that I might disagree, but all right. I, I don't understand why you're so charged up about it, but all right, fine. Uh, and then there's another set of folks uh, who tend, also tend to be younger, who will say, do you ever regret, or not, not do you, don't you regret, or how much do you regret some of your early roles? You know, they were so stereotypical, mm. blah, blah, blah. And my answer is, I don't, you know, I don't regret anything. I think if the root of their question is, do you wish that you lived in a world 20 years ago where you could, like, play a good guy who jumps out of a plane and with a parachute and saves, you know, saves a bunch of innocent people and kills all the bad guys? Well, yeah, sure. I wish my first job was like a Chris Evans role, right? but like that wasn't the reality. So it's very silly to sit there and go, do I wish it now that we put in 20 years of work? We put in that work, man. Like that's, that's what's up. It's, it's wonderful that we, 
now live in a time that's uh, not, not, not to undermine how much work there is still to be done, but but to to not take stock of the last 20 years and to not sure. celebrate that progress would be yeah. uh, would be a missed opportunity. I think. Well, I, I think, you know, um, being being in a same, similar generation as you and I think we understand our parents a little bit more um, than the current generation of young people do and vice versa. It's so privileged to be able to say, why did you have to do that? Right. Because you couldn't. Right. And yeah. um, in your in your book, you go through the painstaking process that you went through being pissed and angry, which I, I again, people who know you just from what they see you in the public eye don't know this thought process. Yeah. And they think, you know, do you really think that all the Asians that play the stereotype tropes of the accents like willingly glad in there and going saying, you know, yes, give me the most racist role you can underpay yeah. me. We don't. <laughs> right, right. Right. But in the grand right. scheme of things, it's like it's this or nothing. And, right. you know, I think the right question is like, you know, what is the contribution of the other, you know, older Asian actors in America that made it so that we can now have the privilege to say, was that necessary? Of course it was necessary because yeah. the system wasn't so friendly to us. The, there's a there's a whole, you know, two, three generations of South Asian performers before me who whose names we may never know, right? They'll, they may yeah. never be household names because there just weren't opportunities. It didn't mean they didn't go to drama school or they weren't qualified. It, it's just a, a lack of opportunity. And if you go to non-South Asian uh Asian American actors that goes back even further. I mean, that, yeah. that goes back to the the thirties and forties and fifties. Uh, but th- what's so to me, what the, the root of exactly what you just said, the misperception that it's even a take it or leave it for performers of color. And I tried to outline this in the, in the audio book and in the book, but um, the number of times that I knew that it was between me and another actor for a part and even if the part was written Indian, and then yeah. I would go to the audition and find that it was a white guy in brown face that I was up against, was like, that's the shit I'm talking about. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's not even like, okay, which Indian actor or which, which Asian American actor will play this part? And should you have played the part? It's like, if you're not going to do it and get that credit on your resume, some white boy is going to do it and they're going to paint his face. So what is your, how are you breaking out of this catch 22 that you're not getting jobs that, you know, that you really want. And so it's, it's what I call in the book, the Brown catch 22, where back in the day you were only allowed to audition for parts that were written stereotypically uh, in my case, uh, Indian or Indian American, although rarely Indian American, usually just, just Indian. Um, And how do you break out of that? You break out of that by unfortunately at that time uh, doing it, making those calculations and hoping that it yielded an opportunity to, um, to do something bigger and bigger, which thankfully in, in in my case uh, turned out to be the kids. I, when I was reading that part of your book or listening to it rather, like the fact that that was still like a thing that they would let on a Hollywood screen, a white guy with brown face play the already stereotypical role of a brown person um, <laughs> was like, it's still happening. Right. And, and I think that's, you know, um, yeah, it, it happened. I mean, it happened. I think the most recent example was the live action Aladdin. Right. Um, they uh, painted a bunch of background actors Mm. Uh, and that became a, a story. And, you know, I, I, uh, I, I bring this up cause I just feel like we can do better. I've, yeah. I, I've full disclosure. I've had nothing but incredible experiences working with Disney. I think it's just, it sounded like it was one of those things where if you read what their, what the Aladdin production said, uh, you know, it was something like, Oh, there weren't enough qualified Brown, uh, 
actors or, or background actors. It's like, no, what that means is you were too lazy to find them. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was because you were on an accelerated production schedule. Maybe it's because you had a budget. Guess what? That shit costs money to do right. Sure. <laughs> so of course it you kind of have to. You kind of have to do it. And so, you know, it, it thankfully doesn't happen as much as it as it used to, and hopefully right. it won't happen at all. But there's still some growing pains to go through. No, I think so. I think it's wonderful. We, you know, even for that show to be so prominent in in Broadway, right? Like, uh, we had Michael here on the oh, show a few the, months ago. I meant the movie. The movie. Oh, the movie. The, oh, yeah, oh, oh, yeah. oh. Broadway is probably just as. Yeah, I don't know enough about the Broadway version. I, I I'm uh, I'm sorry to say, but the you know I'm talking about the movie. Well, at least uh, <laughs> Aladdin and Jasmine are played by our people, so that's good. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine if that was not our people? Oh my god! Yes, um, I can because that's how old yeah. I am. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let, let's let's cover the basics. How how did the Modi family uh, immigrate to America? Where did you move to? And uh, and tell us a little bit about sort of how those early years shaped the belief that you could be an actor one day. Or was that such a, you know, pivot or a hard left from what you were expected to do? And and share with us a little bit about the younger version of Kalpin. Yeah, thank you. In in my case, it was both, right? I uh, I knew this is what I wanted to do, but I, it also didn't necessarily seem like it was something I could do. It depended on who I was talking to on which day. Uh, so my my parents are uh, are part of that post nineteen sixty five uh, immigrant group, right? So for folks listening who are not familiar. The reason there are so many brown and yellow doctors uh, whose parents moved here after 1965 has nothing to do with our DNA and everything to do with immigration. So there weren't enough American-born engineers, doctors, pharmacists, uh, people in those professions in the uh, in the mid-60s. So immigration laws were changed to allow uh, folks who are either pursuing those degrees or who had already gotten them uh, to move here to fill that labor shortage. So uh, my dad uh, was going to grad school for engineering. He got into a a, a grad school in the states, and um, and that's how my that's how my parents came here. My mom has a master's mm-hmm. in chemistry, so similar sort of a thing. Uh, and I think any certainly any parent, but especially any immigrant parent whose ticket to America and to stability was through a particular job, um, they're less concerned with why they got here and more concerned with okay, this is this is what it means to have stability. So. I'm going to encourage my kids to also do this thing that I know to do, which is why I think our generation, there are a disproportionate number of people who have entered medicine, engineering, you know, fields like that. So certainly for, uh, for the, the, uh, the peers that I had growing up, my, my uh, parents, friends, kids, they were all going into, you know, the sciences and that, that seemed to be genuinely their passion too. So, but it was frustrating because if you're the, you're the weirdo, if you're like, I, and I, 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 there's, there was, um, you know, like family parties, right? So aunties and uncles. So, uh, most folks I, su- I assume who are listening know that that doesn't mean you're necessarily related by blood. It means that, you know, an auntie is somebody who had a similar, uh, experience coming to America as your parents and, and, uh, and thinks of you as, as family, even though you're not related by blood that also allows aunties and uncles, uh, this, uh, this unspoken permission to ask you all sorts of invasive questions and to give you unsolicited advice uh, on you know what grades you got, uh, what you want to do with your life, what you want to do in college, and so we would go around the room as kids, and and uh, I remember being fourteen, fifteen years old, and all the other kids my age would be asked, you know, what do you want to do in college? What do you want to major in? And uh, people would say engineering, medicine. They would get to me, and I would say, oh, I want to go to I want to go to film school. I want to be an actor, <laughs> and it was almost like a movie where like you know the record scratches, everyone 
is silent and looks at me and my parents. I have these memories that I'm sure were a little bit embellished, but like these memories of, of aunties going over to console my mom, like, oh, don't worry, we'll have somebody <laughs> talk to him. Uh, but caught up in all of that was was just the idea that that's, that's something that's expected of you. Mm. Um, and as a kid, you certainly don't realize why, right? You just think you, you keep hearing over and over again from uh, older generations. Oh, we're, we're Indian. We don't do anything other than this. And it really wasn't until not to give away the ending of the book, but uh, there's a lot of research that went into the book, mostly because the, one of the subtexts is about how systems can and do change mm-hmm. over time. So there were a couple of years worth of research on uh, particularly on Asian American issues in Hollywood mm-hmm. uh, and then on uh on the political process and, and organizing, but the gaps in the middle were things that were from my my personal life. And mm-hmm. my parents are very quiet in the sense that they prefer their privacy; they don't like to be the center of attention. Same thing with my partner Josh. And so when I included stories with Josh or with my parents, I I spent a lot of time listening to them and and asking them a lot of questions. So when I kept going back to my parents to ask questions about what those early years were like, where I remember feeling frustration, like why am I being discouraged? from something I want to do. And I remember feeling like I was embarrassing my parents when I was 15 or 16. And so I called them and I'm like, hey, among all the questions, I have a new one for you. On a scale of one to 10, how embarrassed were you when, uh, you know, we would have aunties and uncles come over and, and I would I would say I wanted to be an actor. And they had this pause and they go, we were never embarrassed. I don't know how you got that into your head. We were scared because we just never thought as immigrants that, uh, anybody from our community, especially our son, could actually have a career doing what you said you wanted to do, nor did we think it was an actual career. And I don't know why I had to be in my late 30s, early 40s to hear from my own parents that fear was the reason why that all played out the way it did. It should seem so obvious, right? Uh, I don't know if that's just like the self-centered hubris of an American-born kid (laughs) to never consider that, but that meant a lot to me to, to hear that and to kind of put all that stuff in perspective. I think that's one of the things that many in um, I'll generalize here. And if you want to get mad at me, that's fine. But like what the current younger generation don't really fully comprehend because like shitting on your parents is an immigrant kid's pastime, right? Like mommy, mom, you don't understand. You have no idea. And it's like, well, yeah, they don't understand dude, because we could never do what they did and we don't yeah. know what they went through. Yeah. And for them, it's all rooted in security. Yeah. Right. And so, they suffer through years of school that they weren't passionate about. I, you know, cause my, my dad's a doctor too. And like, I, I don't believe that like he wanted to be a doctor, right? Like, but post Korean war growing up with nothing and yeah. you know, grandpa or his dad, my grandpa says like, you should go to med school because there's a direct path to social respectability of income and of just, you know, being taken care of in life. That's what you did. And so I think it's also understandable knowing what they went through, at least trying to understand what they went through, that when they look at us and they generalize like, oh, you're soft, you guys don't have stamina, you don't know what sacrifice means. You know, there's this sort of like people talking to each other generationally that are just talking at each other and not with each other. And and within our community, it's so deep. That's a really good point. It's also one of, you know, uh, people often ask, who did you write this book for? Mm. And it's, uh, it's two sets of people. Um, it's the 25 year old version of me, but then it's also anybody now who, uh, has, um, has different, different passions in life. Mm -hmm. So today it's no longer considered a thing where you have to, 
you have to pick one thing, right? I remember right. when I was in high school, the combination of obviously immigrant parents, but also guidance counselors at the time. If you said you had two different things that you were passionate about, they were presented to you as mutually exclusive choices. Well, you can't have both. I mean, in fact, that, that's one of the titles yeah. of the chapter, I think, is like my guidance counselor saying you can't have your cake and eat it too. Right. When I said I was interested in both public service and the arts. Today, the the idea that you only have one thing you want to do is considered a detriment. Right. People are encouraged to have multiple passions, multiple interests, um, so much so that like generationally, there's it's it's almost a stigma if you have a job that you don't love, which <laughs> like what a privilege that is. You know what I right. mean? So so I think you're right that that we happen to fall in the middle of both of those where it's the parents generation of it would be considered a luxury to love anything between nine and five. Yeah. Uh, and for a generation that's below ours. You're crazy if you don't love what you're doing right. nine and five. So I, I do agree with you that that and that's one of the reasons I tried to lay out these stories with so much context is because I wish I had that understanding. Yeah. I wish there was a book or a person or someone yeah. who's like, let me break it down for you in a way that isn't judgy, but will still make sense. Yeah. And hopefully you laugh about it. I mean, and that's the reason yeah. literally the reason why I started this podcast, too. Right. Because the 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 top line headline is I'm doing this for my kids. Yeah. But the subtext is I'm doing this for me and you. Because yeah, right. there are people that are in our age group, right? Like late 30s, early 40s that have never had this realization right. that there's logic and reason to why we were pushed to do certain things or why we're able to do certain things. And at the end of the day, we have so much ability and influence where we sit now, regardless of what industry you're in, to like if we can empower the people of our generation and above to make life fundamentally easier and different and contextually rich for the next generation. Yeah. Like that's where I think we win. Right. So yeah. like, I, and I know that, you know, we, we've been often taught early on to really believe this mantra of like representation matters, but like, mm. I don't think that's enough because um, especially in politics, the world that you're familiar with, like there's a lot of people who look like us who don't do anything for us. Right. And so <laughs> yeah. like that representation alone, isn't going to cut it. Yeah. Like we have I, to have proper representation. That's right. And also I don't, I don't necessarily, um, uh, look down on any of those folks, you know, if you're being elected to represent a group of people who do not include the collective us, mm. uh, part of me obviously is like, I wish you had the presence of mind to still understand that you have a voice to stand up for the collective us. But, you know, I think of people like, and, and just to be clear, I, I obviously vehemently disagree with his politics, but I think of somebody like Bobby Jindal, right? Like I couldn't think of one thing that I probably have in common politically or policy wise with Bobby Jindal, nor do I want him to ever seek elected office because I think he's bad for America. <laughs> but but it does rub me the wrong way when I hear people say, oh, that guy's a sellout. That guy doesn't represent us. Did you think that the governor of Louisiana was supposed to represent you? I mean, there's, you know, there's a part of me that's like that, that I'm agreeing with you, by the way, that that representation alone doesn't necessarily make a difference, right? I think it's it's tricky, uh, and especially in our community, there there are plenty of folks who we disagree with across the board um, who might be out there. Um, but I also don't think that necessarily. I'll, I'll give you another example. I don't think that that necessarily means we can't take certain lessons away. So I, I remember when um, when I was at the Obama White House, uh, Governor Haley, Nikki Haley from South mm -hmm. Carolina, came in. Um, for a, a governor's meeting, and uh, another South Asian uh, American friend of mine happened to uh, staff her. So that just meant he had to uh, pick her up at the front gate and walk her to the meeting. So, mm. you know, a, 
a duty that was maybe no more than five minutes. Right. And they, but they both happened to be Brown. And, and he just said, as she was walking with him, you know, uh, governor as a, as an Indian American, I just have to say it's, uh, although we disagree on politics, it's nice to see a South Asian woman in your position. And she said something to the effect of, thank you. That means a lot to me. Um, you know, we need to do more in the pipeline for young Asian Americans and young South Asians um, to enter these leadership mm-hmm. roles, regardless of what someone's politics are, just so that we know that these are jobs that are accessible, that these fields right. are public service, that we know that that those are things that, that our community has a right to access as well. So it wasn't a conversation about politics. It was a conversation about access uh, to institutions of power or institutions that were historically uh, shut out of. And I thought that was just such an interesting thing because it, it's, you know, again, somebody whose politics are very divergent from from my friend who I worked with, but there was still an opportunity yeah. to acknowledge the the work that could be done. I, I agree. I, I find myself getting um, angry at or um, just angry in general, especially, you know, with the world, the way, with the way that the world is these days, you know, because, um, you know, as a current American, it's like really cool because we have five Congress people, but two of them I don't dis- I don't agree with on anything and like yeah yeah and I'm like why would you take that seat from somebody who could actually do yeah. good for us and you playing the Korean card to get there but then not doing the things to in my opinion again because then they'll yeah. say you know not your only your you shouldn't be the only opinion which fine I, I I get it but but I think you know um like representation and and I find your career so fascinating because you played in two of the most public arenas right? Like politics and entertainment, or at least the sure. public perceiving, right? Like, yeah. And, and, yeah. and yeah. so for, for, for you, um, as you navigated um, UCLA and getting into acting, like how much of that, and then the conversations that you had with your parents, how much was it for you, Cal, as an individual? And at what point did you realize, perhaps because you were uh, seemingly being shut out of some opportunities because of the way you looked, um, that it was bigger than you. And, and I know you talked about it in the book. I don't know at what point, but you know, it's this frustration that like, I just want to be known for this instead of having yeah, yeah. to be a great Brown person or a good Asian person. <laughs> right. This. Right. Like that media, like we're not, we weren't allowed to be mediocre, right. Because yeah. so much of that burden was on us collectively. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's also multifaceted. In my case, I, I don't think being Brown had anything to do with why I wanted to be an actor. I enjoy storytelling. I enjoy making people laugh. I enjoy the feeling, you know, there's a story in the book about uh, when I played the Tin Man in my eighth grade production of The Wiz (laughs) um, and how that sort of opened my eyes to the power of comedy, bringing people together when we changed a bunch of bullies minds about what it meant to be a, a nerdy drama kid. Um, so those are the reasons why I, I, I really enjoy what I do for a living. And I think you're right. It, other people will always assign things to that. So, mm. um, you know, the, even the idea of, uh, you know, getting, uh, getting those first few auditions or those first few jobs where um, you go on an audition and you're asked to put on an accent or the role itself. I mean, I, one of my first big jobs in uh, the movie Van Wilder, I played a guy named Taj Mahal. <laughs> I mean, that is literally, it was the long duck dong of my generation uh, with, with a few improvements perhaps. But, uh, but even then, you know, it's, it, it's the conversation you have with yourself of, okay, what is this role? Well, an accent alone is not a stereotype. Plenty of people have accents. The, the challenge is 
when accents are used to mask subpar writing, right? When writers or producers understand that their script isn't amazing and they think that a joke that's worked before can work again, it's understanding that especially linear television works by looking backwards, not forward. That's one of the reasons Netflix and Amazon and Hulu do so well. And the traditional networks, no disrespect to them, but their business model thrives by looking backwards. What worked before? What did advertisers pay for before? It's very cautious. So you end up finding yourself in these situations where, at least in my case, where I'm, I'm sitting there going, okay, well, the character has an accent, but the character also drives the plot of the story in the film. And without this character, the story couldn't progress. So it's an integral character. And then at some point you just get exhausted where you're like, why do I have to have these conversations with myself? I just want to make people laugh, man. I just want to play the guy. You know, uh, John Cho uh, it, it, back in the day used to say, um, the last thing I want to play is a role that's, uh, that in the email says he's the good Asian cop. Okay, but who is he? The good Asian cop says nothing. It, it tells me about his ethnicity, and you're telling me that he's probably boring because he has nowhere for his character arc to go. You know, what does that mean he's a good Asian cop? What makes him tick? What are his flaws? What's the what's the oomph of who this human is, right? Those are the things that that humanize us. So so yeah, the 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 frustrations early on are when your ethnicity or your appearance is tied by other people to um to your job when the reality is that that may have nothing to do with in my case at least the the passion for why you're a storyteller i mean it's hard because i think we live in this balance um again with particularly when um i don't know if people will consider you know van wilder or you know Harold and kumar as like the first time they actually saw you yeah. and, and and i think even then it's sort of like the reason why I thought Harold and Kumar was cool back then and you and you validated it for me through the book was that it didn't matter that you guys were. It wasn't yeah. right. Like it could have been like, you know, I don't know, like Chad and Barry, right? Like Yeah, yeah. But there were storylines of like, you know, the expectations of med school and all this other stuff. Like the the rebellion. I, I think I, I will speak for the entire generation. And so again, if you don't agree with me, whatever. We felt validated that a rebellious Asian American that we could relate to was on a big screen. And yeah. that gave us permission to be more off the beaten path, right? Yeah, and, and I think sure. it wasn't, right? Because it seemed very relatable, right? Yeah. Almost too relatable. Like, are they playing <laughs> themselves or are they playing characters, right? Because right, right. It, it seemed like regular guys. And then I think yeah. that's, you know, so going from sort of, and then you talk about it in the book, like the one role, the Harold and Kumar would not have happened without the initial role. And so for every person that, you know, craps on you for doing the stereotypey things, then can't celebrate you for everything that you've done probably including the White House stuff because everything in life happens in succession. Right. And, and and I, I think that's really, really fascinating for, for me to have um, sort of seen from a distance your career evolve. Um, and, and so I, I want to talk to you about Harold and Kumar because that is still, you know, from, from a pop culture perspective, what people, you know, probably like shout at you when they see you in an airport or something. Yeah, yeah. But how how do you then sort of as an actor and as a public servant and as just Cal in general, want to be known for more knowing that pop culture moment was responsible for all of what you're experiencing now. Yeah. And like, I don't, I get even having a hard time like putting the words around it, but like no, I know it was so saying. important to get to where you are, but it's not yeah. what you want to be known for in a single dimension perspective. I, I mean, look, uh, uh, so, uh, I get, um, 
I get yelled uh, at a lot for that movie. Usually people just yell Harold. <laughs> hey Harold. Uh, Which is like, come on. Like <laughs> No, look, I, I in all honesty, so you're asking you're asking and I I, I assume John feels uh similarly. <laughs> you're asking a guy who's had a ton of jobs, right? Who yeah. who I used to eat uh ramen noodles, uh I'd crack an egg in it for a little protein, beans out of a can for years. One of my old apartments was literally behind a morgue. Like they would, the, the kitchen, it was in an, behind an, the alley separated the morgue from my building and I was on the ground floor and both the bedroom and the kitchen faced the alley where they'd bring bodies in. So they were always in body bags, but I would see that shit regularly. So you're asking me, no, 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 fast forward, you know, what, seven years after that, five years after that, whatever it was when we, when I booked Harold and Kumar. And, and and what I'm complaining about what the fact that people call me Harold and I get offered weed on the street for free. Come on. <laughs> if that's your job hazard now, you got nothing to complain about. But, but uh, so that's generally my attitude about that is I, it, it, as long as it's all love, I, I appreciate it very much. Um, the, the impact that that movie had was unexpected. I, I think, you know, you, you read the, uh, or listened to the parts in the book where I talk about how, how John and I met and, uh, you know, our, our friendship really solidified the first night when we both talked about how important it was, how we both wished there was a movie like Harold and Kamar Go to White Castle mm-hmm. when we were kids. And that was our, our first night of rehearsal. So it was still three weeks away from shooting a single mm-hmm. frame of that movie. And, and we immediately bonded off of that. So that was really reassuring to know that we were both on the same page with what it would have meant to us. I think John called it the 12 year old me and I called it the middle school me, the same concept. What would younger me, you know, think of this. Um, and then the, 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 the general idea in Hollywood at the time was a question, can, you know, are, uh, can Asian American men open a studio film? Mm. Yeah, that, that was an open question. And the reason the movie got greenlit to begin with was there were two junior executives uh, at one of the studios um, that uh, that had the movie. And they were given one project, I think, a year uh, or maybe maybe two a year that they could greenlight. So it was a low-budget movie. They loved the script. They greenlit it. And when the movie came out, uh, almost everybody forgets it tanked at the box office. So Harold and Camargo to White Castle did not do well. If there are a handful of people who remember seeing it with a packed theater, that was probably Chicago, San Francisco, or New York. Um, but beyond that, there there were it, it just didn't do well, and it it barely made the full two week commitment from most exhibitors, the so most commitments that theater uh, theater owners have to keep a movie there. And then months went by. It came out on HBO and it came out on DVD with almost no marketing budget. And fans found it on their own. So you had people who were hosting watch parties, buying DVDs to give to friends. And this was happening not just in San Francisco, Chicago, New York. This was happening in Omaha and in rural Kentucky and in Texas and in like literally all over the place. Places where people had never met two Asian American guys who looked like John and I. And that shit took off. Like we couldn't walk down the street without people saying that they saw our movie. And it was truly a cross section. It wasn't just the Asian American community. That was so reassuring, and this goes to, to the point that I think you were making with, with that movie, is uh, that was also unexpected for us. We, we, had the initial dis- we had the initial hope when we met and made the movie, then the huge disappointment of thinking that, oh, maybe these executives were right. Maybe America's not ready. And it turned out they were ready. The marketing sucked. So once the DVD came out with no marketing and fans were left to 
find it on their own, they did find it and they did enjoy it. And, and so, um, you know, I, I have a lot of love for that franchise. And you're right, it, it launched a lot of opportunities. Did you and John talk about the reverse stereotyping that film sort of launched or, or sort of uh, sort of gave permission to? Meaning, did you guys talk about the fact that it was one of the first times that two Asian American men would, you know, headline a film and open on, on a major motion, you know, sort of on the, on the big screen and that the storyline was so antithetical to what we were supposed to be. What yeah. was there like, you know, I mean, in, in stereotypical form, did you guys collectively worry about, holy crap, what is mom and auntie going to think? What are mom's church friends going to think? Or, or was it just so relieving that you could play a role that was just normal? I don't think it was either of those two. I think uh, that we just thought it was cool that uh, that we had these characters who were so grounded. Mm. So the truth of those characters plays, right? Like at no point in the movie, even when they're doing ridiculous things like riding a cheetah high off their asses, <laughs> hang gliding, you know, like at no point do the characters not believe with 100% certainty that that's what they're doing in the moment. There's a little bit, meta for for any of the the film nerds listening but but that's that's what makes the comedy work and it's what makes the story work they're also authentic to who they are they're unapologetic i mean they are the guys who you know kumar is making choice both of them both of them are making choices over the course of the film so i don't think the to me concerns about stereotypes come from reductionism so whether mm-hmm. um you know, whether it's an accent, whether it's a job, you know, the, the job thing is a prime example. People often say, uh, and I mean, folks, even within the community, they'll often say, oh, he had to play a, a convenience store owner. He had to play a cab driver. Well, is that what you mean? Is there something inherently shameful about being a hardworking store owner or, or a cab driver? Certainly not. I think what most people are referring to is when a profession is somehow tied to uh, humanity or when a profession is tied to a character or an ethnicity, then it dumbs down that the, the only yeah. thing you know about them is what they do for a living, not what makes mm-hmm. them tick, not right. what pushes something forward. And so it's, it's less about that and more, more about who the person is, you know, on the, uh, on the inside character wise. So, so that was what, what was super exciting. I certainly didn't have any concerns about the stereotyping that said, I don't live in a vacuum. I'm aware of the reality. I never grew up seeing characters like this. So hell yeah, it was obvious that that was a byproduct of it. Uh, if you really want to get deep, um, and I, I may have, uh, there may have been a footnote about, about this, but uh, the New York Times reviewer, A.O. Scott, uh, wrote a review of Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle when it first came out. And it is the most uh, analytic and spot on review of that movie that I have ever read. So if you want to read it, just Google uh, A.O. Scott, New York Times, Harold and Kumar go to White Castle review. And it, it talks a lot about um, sort of dissecting the intersection of race and power and hmm. uh, and all of the things that, that, that happened in that movie. That's very, very cool, man. Um, fun fact, when I was in business school, I had a good friend who was Indian and he decided that we should go to the business school Halloween party, as said yes. Harold and Kumar. So we did. How'd that go? Uh, I mean, it was. I mean, everybody was wasted out of their minds. I was like, but we, you know, I just felt the pressure to always like travel together inside the club. Mm-hmm. Which, mm-hmm. when you're by yourself, you're like, who are you? And I was like, ah, none of this makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you know, Ashwin, we have to walk together at all times. So that we're, I love we're a, it. We're, we're a duo, duo costume. Um, we we love the Harold and Kumar costumes. <laughs> 
but I, I you know, uh, as, as a cut, I guess, as many other Korean Americans did, I had the tan polo jacket ready to go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you like already have that. Right? De facto. Right, um, right. <laughs> let, let, let's talk about storytelling because obviously you do that, you know, uh, as an actor. Um, but, you know, uh, we're really here celebrating the, the paperback launch of your book, which only the good books get the paperback launch. And so, like, way to go on, on that. Thank you. Thank you. I'm um, we, and, and the book, amongst all other media forms, is still the most traditional, the most sort of respectable and respectful form to for, for people to to have the privilege of like spending time to like create something that is forever and then paperback. And I know people read books on tablets and listen to books, but the idea of going and seeing your book, your name, your face on a physical bookshelf, I think is a feeling that is, is very, very unmatched. Um, where was the idea for you to take your life experiences um, in, in, you know, cause you're certainly not done with your life by, by far, yeah. but in this moment, wh- how, when, did you feel it was the right time to take a pause and saying chapter one or the series, the first acts, you know, get reflected here? Uh, it's the opposite of the way you described it. So for <laughs> me, no, no, in a good way, man, in, in a really good way. For me, I, I never, uh, I, I've had a lot of friends, uh, thankfully, who have written books, some fiction, some nonfiction. I know what a huge undertaking that is. And I was not the type of person who said, I need to see my name on a book on a bookshelf. Like, I don't, I don't, I didn't feel that I needed that. Right. And so the, and the origin story of this book was that the day I left the white house, maybe it was the following morning. My, I've only had one manager who, as you know, now from, from listening to the book, who I described a Hollywood manager. So for, for my Mm -hmm. acting career, only one manager over, over the course of my career. So 20 years. And I describe him accurately in the book as a combination of every character from the HBO show Entourage in one person. So his name is Dan. He's a hilarious, ridiculous person um, who who's just like it, every stereotype of Hollywood. He's he's a lion, but he has a heart of gold. Anyway, he called and he goes, uh, "Hey, um, you need to write a book. You, you left the White House yesterday. It was your last day. You need to write a book." And I said, "Well, why?" He goes, "Because nobody's done what you've done. Nobody has ever gone from Hollywood." To Washington. And I said, literally, dude, the governor of California is Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> like there, that is actually the governor. Plenty of people have done this. Ronald Reagan became president. Ben Stein worked for two presidents. I mean, come on. Uh, and I kind of put it to bed quickly. He said, okay, I see what you mean, but I just think you have a story to tell. And, and that was it. And then a few years went by. And the thing that you and I had just talked about where the, the idea that you're, uh, your passions used to have to be mutually exclusive, right? You either become a doctor or you are a painter. You either mm-hmm. major in dance or you major in chemistry. The, the, the idea today that you can do all of those things, it seemed like, oh, shit, maybe there is an opportunity to tell a story. And then with COVID and everyone re- reassessing what they wanted to do for a living, what they want to do with their lives, really, where do you want to live? What kind of a person do you want to be? It seemed like a good time to share my story um, having had the privilege of of working in, like you said, these two industries that I think you called them very very public facing. In in my world, they were always viewed as monoliths. So as the kid of immigrants, I didn't know anybody who was working in Hollywood. I certainly didn't know anyone who was working in government or in politics. Both of them seemed like monoliths that people like us just can never access, and that's not true. So the idea that maybe there's uh, an opportunity to tell my story, uh, obviously the goal. 
you know, it was to make people laugh. I want this to be a book that you can read on vacation. I want it to be a book you can listen to in, in traffic and it eases your mind. You laugh with me. It should feel like we're having a beer together. But through that are also these these lessons. It's not a how-to book, but I hope that you see some of yourselves in in my story. That was the reason that I, I ultimately wanted to to share those experiences. I, that's I, I mean, I am so appreciative of of you sharing your story because I, I think a book um, and, and for for people to sort of get the uh, the time right, like the audiobook is nine plus hours, right? Like yeah. this interview is going to be about an hour. Like yeah. the amount of digging that you can do and yep. placemaking, and then you as the guide, like you know, being the Sherpa and like taking people through your story in a long form format. Is, yeah. is is rich and you know i mean that's why it took you you know two three years to to right. you know um and, and so i i think that's really really cool i mean you have done some amazingly wonderful and just sort of in and of itself ridiculous things in your life and again not to put us at not not because but despite because the world isn't fair um particularly yeah. america isn't fair for people who look like me and you the odds of those things happening to somebody who looks like you was even slimmer um sure. I'm, I'm talking like you know White House job, book on a bookshelf, um, yeah. you know, movies, TV, uh, headlining the DNC. Um, yeah. Have you ever asked your parents what they were most proud of you for? Yeah. Uh, so first, thank you. I mean, that means a lot. And I, I'm not trying to pass this off, but none of these things were possible without people supporting. Right. Mm-hmm. And the uh, part of it is the community. You know, there, there was uh, uh, parts of the the story of my college days where I sort of was like, it's it would be inauthentic for me to tell this story and not talk about the times where our Asian American peers, particularly Indian American peers, tried to discourage those of us who were entering the arts by saying shit like, "Oh, you're a sellout. Why are you majoring in theater? Why are you majoring in film? You should be a, you know, a bio major or something." I mean, it's so silly now. Obviously, I can laugh about it, and I laughed about it in the book. But but the reason that we mentioned it is, yes, sometimes it was the community that was supportive and that was helping. Other times it was just people in general and and how reassuring that was mm. uh, on one hand to see that like, oh, this idea that we can't do this is wrong. And you just need, I mean, it goes back to the basics, right? You need the opportunity, whoever gives you that opportunity, wherever it comes from. One of the great equalizers for uh, for Asian American artists now is is everything being digital, right? You, mm. You're yeah. a content creator, a writer, uh, you, you make music, you make art. You can digitally upload it, share it, and if it's good, if people like it, it'll trend. It'll it'll take off. You don't have to beat down people's doors. You know the the gatekeepers are are uh, fewer and farther between now, which is which is really nice. Um, but wait, well, uh, what what uh, you? Oh, you asked me about the parents. Oh, you try to get me emotional. Okay, but it's true. <laughs> this is true. So, uh, my grandparents, especially on my mom's side, were active in the Indian independence movement. So my my uh, mom's parents, especially, and as as kids, we used to hear stories about them marching with Gandhi when we were when we were little. Like literally, your grandma telling you stories about marching, grandfather telling you stories about getting beaten by British soldiers and thrown in jail uh, for going to a a protest were what they would tell us to like coerce us into eating our vegetables. So imagine like like eight or nine year old me in my head. I'm just like, ah, oh, your grandpa goes again. Another story about Gandhi. And it's not until late, later in high school and early college where you sit there and go, oh my gosh, those stories were actually the basis of our own American civil rights movement and how special those things were. So cut to, uh, and I'm certainly not equating, just to, to get ahead of it here, I, I'm not equating working 
uh, at the White House with anything that my grandparents did. But I had the chance to be a small part of the uh, inaugural concert on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial the day before Obama's inauguration. And so, you know, whether you loved the guy or hated the guy for his politics, it was undoubtedly a very historic moment, the country's first black president. Uh, and being on that stage as part of that that uh, ceremony, I really just had what, like a 90 second bit. I was reading a quote from a previous president, from President Eisenhower. And I got to bring my parents and I got to bring my mm-hmm. my manager and a few friends to to the concert. And, um, and they got to meet the first family backstage afterwards. And my mom comes backstage and she just very simply says, your grandparents would have been very proud of you today. Mm. You know, she said, I never would have imagined that my son, you know, in America, that, that my American born son would be up there one day doing what just happened. And it was not, there weren't like tears or anything. It was just such a, it was a very quiet, very quick moment that meant the world to me. Uh, and I will never forget that because of everything that it symbolized about how far uh, our family had come in two generations. And it really was obviously signifying more than just me and my mom and my grandparents. It was signifying, you know, the, the collective us. I, you know, I, I can't imagine even what you went through, um, you know, again, in and of itself, just as an average American to be there is ridiculous. Yeah. But if we just go for all of us immigrant kids, like one generation back and it's like, was this even within the realm of possibility of a dream? Right. Yeah. Especially for those of you, you know, for those of our parents and grandparents who who fought for democracy, right, who fought against regimes or fought off communism, right, right. like it doesn't compute. I mean, look, I, you know, we, we have we I'm blessed to have two friends who one who now does uh, Howard O, who has your job now and, and Gary Lee with whom you served. Um, and even when they told me that they got the job just by association, like one of us gets to work yeah. there. Yeah, that was cool. Um, I got invited for a three hour party and my dad cried. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. And so I I can't imagine the amount of, um, both inspiration, but also more importantly, belief because you did it, you know, like, and we, we didn't talk about it. You, you, you mentioned it briefly, but like a gay Indian actor is doing this and he is just himself. And that's the reason why he's getting there. And, um, you know, I don't want to give away too much of your book, but like you almost didn't get hired at the White House because you were still hesitant to be Cal Penn, the actor in, you know, you were so mindful of wanting to follow the process and be um, hired for who you were from a work perspective. Right. And, yeah. and not flex the network. And and that I was like, dude, like you're from Hollywood. It's all about who, you know, like just send a text. Right. Like, um, but just in that chance moment that everything happened the way it did. Um I, you know, and I know we're just getting to know each other as friends through this interview and um, what I know of you from your book, but like, you know, thank you because go ahead. I, I appreciate that, but I, I, I got to say two things. So, uh, so first of all, thank you. And I, the reason I'm, the reason I understand and I, I'm saying it means a lot is I don't feel that I've, I'm not the guy. Like I, I, you know, to, to abuse an overused phrase in the last couple of years, like the shoulders that I'm standing on are they, there are several people whose shoulders I'm standing on and they're standing on other people's shoulders. So the, the, the starting point of the story is not me by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and there, the two things that I was, that I was thinking of, there's a very good friend of mine in the UK 
um, and I met his cousins. Um, this was a few years ago. And his cousin, granted, he had had a couple of vodkas, but his cousin goes, uh, another another brown dude, he, he goes, hey, man, um, you know, when you made it, we made it. And the, I'm getting teary-eyed thinking about that because of what it meant to me. The reason that that resonated with me is that's how I felt when I saw Mira Nair's first big mm. film, Mississippi Masala, with Denzel Washington and Sreet Chowdhury. I was like 13, 14 years old when that movie came out. And I remember feeling that way. I remember feeling like, oh, this brown woman directed this movie with this, this other brown woman who's starring in it. And all of these characters that are not one dimensional and they are flawed and they make mistakes and they love and they hate and they all, all everything in between. I'm like, I, I feel empowered by this. And that was one of the reasons that I, uh, that I, that I felt empowered enough to, to pursue a career in the arts. So when I hear that, the reason it resonates with me, and I will, I will of course say, say thank you, but, but really, like for me, it's about the, the people who did that for me, the, mm. the people who motivated me in that way. In terms of the White House stuff, I also have to give credit. I mean, that is the most diverse place I've ever worked in my life. Um, and when I first started on the Obama campaign, I, I went to Iowa in October of 2007. And one of the I, I met people who Obama had put on staff there. And just for context, October 2007, Obama was most recently 30 points down in the polls in the mm. primary against Hillary Clinton, John Edwards. Nobody thought he was going to win. And I go to I go to his campaign office in Des Moines, Iowa, the Iowa headquarters. And I'm meeting I met a guy named Rohan Patel, who's still uh, a buddy of mine. Rohan, uh, you know, brown guy looks like me or looks more like me than than not. Uh, not to say we all look alike, you know. I feel like it's a comfortable crowd. I don't have to give that disclaimer. <laughs> That's the white folks disclaimer that I have to give. We don't actually look alike, okay? Uh, but so Rohan Patel, right? Another another Desi dude, another brown guy. Uh, I meet him and find out that he is uh, Senator Obama's head of rural and agricultural outreach in Iowa. And my mind was blown. I was like, a brown brother is doing farmers outreach in a 97% white state? <laughs> This does not, I took a poli-sci class. This does not seem like a smart idea. Then I meet uh, a guy who's doing his uh, LGBT outreach. And that dude is a straight Marine. And I was like, what? Why is a straight Marine doing LGBT outreach? And then someone explains to me two things. One, Rohan was the best person for the job. That's why he's doing agricultural outreach. The guy who's doing LGBT outreach is also doing uh, military and veterans outreach. And the reason for that was, A, he was the best person for the job, but B, Obama had a commitment to repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell legislatively. So he felt strongly that the person who had both of those outreach jobs mm. was the same person to signify the seriousness with which he wanted to, to change that law. So it, there were all these examples of going against whatever you learn about in college as, oh, this is the status quo. This is how things work. And seeing that when the best people are hired, obviously, while taking diversity into account, um, there's a whole bunch of stuff you can do that you otherwise wouldn't have the chance to. And so I just, I, I feel like I have to acknowledge that because having left the, you know, my, my two and a half years, and then I stayed for the, the remaining uh, five and a half years doing uh, uh, as an, uh, as an appointee on an, on an arts position, but coming back to entertainment and it's always going to be my first love, but I remember dealing with typecasting again after I left the white house and uh, my manager said, you know, sort of half jokingly, he's like, yeah, I mean, welcome back to the real world. Welcome back mm -hmm. to Hollywood. You know, 
So I, I don't want to say, oh, yeah, um, I, I did all this stuff. Oh, thank you so much. I really want to offer that context that it, it's the people who opened those doors for me, but then also the people who hired me and hired other people. It's not just about me. It's other folks from the community who had jobs. We're so used to thinking like, okay, well, maybe it's only this, only this uh, Asian American job that I can have at this institution. That's how I can access this. It's not true. You know, you, you, we should demand our seat at the table for what we're actually qualified for, which of course will include community-based things, but will include a whole slew of other stuff as well. Yeah. I I struggle with that too. Um, if, if people look at me, you know, just on paper on my resume, like, sure. Like I enjoy doing this work of amplifying our voice, particularly via podcasts and, you know, through Mm. corporate work, but there is a part where I'm like, dude, like I am fundamentally objectively better at some of this leadership stuff and public speaking, interviewing people than anybody, period. I know that. Yeah. And, and But there is this sort of balance of like, then do I just be objectively great and then use my influence to uplift the community that way? Yeah. Or like do the actual grunt work of, you know, being in the community. And I, I struggle with it so much back and forth because you're right. Like there is a need for all of us to do work within the community and represent us. And there are people who are better equipped to do that as you were um, and as Howard is like in that role. But at the same time, like, I just want to be, you know, we just want to be an Asian person. That's just like, (laughs) whoa, that's so cool. Right. Like, you know, like, you know, and so I I think that's cool. And another, another, you know, as we wrap here, Harold, like, or sorry, Harold, (laughs) whoa, (laughs) we're going to leave that in because that was too funny. Leave it in. Um, You have a free pass. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I get one. Uh, I, I still have pictures of me with the Herald name but, tag, so it's fine. But um, also, let me let me interrupt you for two seconds. There was a guy. There was a guy. Uh, this was like two years after Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle came out. Uh, he was wasted. I was at a bar with some friends. <laughs> wasted brown dude. He comes over to me and he goes, "Hey, I got a bone to pick with you." I'm like, "Okay, this is weird that a 22 year old speaks like he's from the 50s, but okay. What's the what's the bone you have to pick with me?" brown brother and he goes uh because of you i get called kumar everywhere i go and i just looked at him and i was like it's better than apu though right (laughs) and he his mind his drunk mind was blown and he just gave me this look he was like yeah oh yeah it is all right have a good night i'm like you too buddy take care <laughs> oh man I mean, one one stereotype to another but you agree it's it's more relatable right and it was uh yeah no for sure um my, my, also, my, i don't think i don't find harold and kumar to be stereotypical i just think it's 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 uh it's kind that it's uh uh that it's iconic in it's in its own right mm. anyway sorry i keep cutting you no, off no 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 cal you know i mean when Coming away from your book, I felt uh, inspired to do more, right? And and this is not to say, um, maybe I am putting you on a pedestal, but it got me thinking about opportunity cost in this yeah. way. So many of us don't do the thing that we want to do, don't do the thing that we think we are supposed to do, not from a auntie says you should, but like what we feel right is in our hearts. From yeah. a professional perspective, um, and I say this as a guy who walked away from a post-MBA career to do storytelling for a living, and it's worked yeah. financially, but I talk to so many other people, as I'm sure you do as well, that can't, right? Because yeah. like the thing that I have is so good. I am It yeah, is yeah. driven by fear, but this jumping off thing seems like, oh, I can't do that. 
Yeah. But hearing your story is, you know, and again, we're not going to point to Cal and being like, well, if he did it, you can do it. But like you put a lot of money on the table, right? Like you asked to be written off a show that, you know, it was a dream, not only for many people, but for you specifically. And and then to say, Hey, you know, like this other work is meaningful. Um, and the, obviously, the caveat is like you were financially okay to make the jump, and like right. that wasn't yes. going to impact your your livelihood. Um, exactly. I wish we all had that basic thing, and which is reason why we fight for the things you and I fight for. Um, yep. But but it got me to give a shit a little bit more, right? Like as I was listening, I was like, "Am I doing enough?" And and it wasn't guilt ridden. Am I doing enough? But yeah. like in in all the ways. In, in every day of how we do the work or how we live our lives, like what can we yeah. do? And it got me super nostalgic about the Obama days because I think that's when I was, you know, a lot, a lot of, all of us collectively were a hell of a lot more hopeful about yeah. what government can do for us. Sure. And, and yeah. even though obviously, you know, Biden was, you know, his, his right-hand guy, like it just feels different in a little bit. And maybe this yeah. is so much more, but um, I mean, so, so for that, first of all, I just want to say thank you because I think, um, even, you know, for, for me as a 39 year old dad of two, like just thinking about like, what can I do more to make it, you know, tangibly better for my kids. And, um, that, that I thought was super insightful. And, and two, um, you've experienced so much from the outside and particularly from the inside of one of the most fundamentally transformative, uh, administrations two times over. Um, what keeps you hopeful now? And, and what is the, what what is the the policy nerd in Cal say about how we can continue to keep the fire going um, when it just seems so bleak sometimes? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think it I think it's to acknowledge the bleakness. I I won't sugarcoat something that doesn't exist. The if it feels like the world is burning, it's because the world is burning, right? But that doesn't mean that the choice is, well, there's nothing we can do. That would be the biggest mistake in the world. And frankly, having seen and worked in these institutions, particularly in politics, they are designed that way on purpose. If someone can convince you to be complacent because nothing matters anymore, then they have won and they can continue to do the things that they can do. I, I, I look at you know the, the last uh, election or the, the one before that, the 2016 election, uh, I'm presuming that most of your listeners might uh, have beliefs that align a little further to the left than than most. So you look at that election and uh, the combination of, okay, I want somebody who's more progressive than the last guy is obviously a natural thing. But the notion that if the nominee for the party is not the person who you think is the most progressive, that you're going to pretend that there's a magic wand and either not vote or not participate or vote for someone who's not what we call a viable candidate in a general election, that that's not an actual decision that you're making. You're not helping, right? And that's the frustrating thing is, you know, we always talk about, or I at least talk about like, am I guilty of sending that nasty tweet because it makes me feel good? Hell yeah, we're all guilty <laughs> of the like, you read something crazy and you're like, that shit is crazy. And then you say something like, sure, that's a thing. But that is not, that does not change anything. It makes you feel better. And there's a value to that. And there's a value to feeling connected with a community of folks who have your own beliefs. But then there's a different set of things, which is how do you actually make uh, an impact on something? And sometimes making an impact on something means that it's a lot more calculated 
And, you know, to, to borrow another overused phrase, you're never going to get 100% of what you want. That doesn't mean that you don't set your goal at 400% of that thing. But it's recognizing that even if you only get 10 or 15%, you don't squander that 10 or 15%. You take it and you build upon it. Right now, obviously, things are incredibly dire, right? You, you look at the like, there's the I told you so crowd, which mm. I'm obviously a part of. Like, oh, we, <laughs> you know, we told you what would happen if you elected the former president. We told you that there would be these Supreme Court seats. We, you should have listened when Reagan and the Bushes and every Republican says we want to overturn Roe versus Wade. Believe them. You know, the fact that Trump was a little bit different in his approach doesn't change the fact that he espoused and continues to espouse every policy piece that Republicans want to continue to uh, push forward. And he was very successful at that. So we might feel like, oh, well, what, why does anything matter anymore? That's exactly how they want you to feel. If they got you off of the fight, then they mm -hmm. have won at exactly what they want to do. And the fight's not over. So that that's the tricky thing. If I can give you a little bit more of a nerdy example, uh, um, I remember, uh, and I, this may be in the book, forgive me, I don't, I don't remember, but it's a story that I tell to friends a lot. Um, so in addition to being uh, the president's uh, Asian American outreach liaison, I also was uh, his uh, youth outreach person. And so in that job, uh, one of the things that I had to do was put together a summit on uh, young people and climate change. Mm. So there was the summit, I think it was probably uh, about two years into the administration. Um, and there were about 120 slots. And so we divided them up into three groups. So a third of them were young progressives who you would expect would come to a summit on climate change. A third were young evangelical Christian conservatives who didn't necessarily believe in the science around climate change, but they knew that climate change was happening. And their view was God put us here to take care of the planet. And so our view was whatever gets you to the table, if you're going to come to the table and you're going to help push climate change legislation, you need to be here. And then the remaining third were just business kids who, you know, they graduated from B school and were like, hey, I created this gadget where you can charge your iPhone with the kinetic energy that you carry around with you. Great. Come to the meeting. Right. So these these three groups of people came to the meeting. What was wonderful about it was it was three groups of people that otherwise would not be at the table for a conversation on their shared goals mm. because they would be too busy fighting each other, understandably, on all of the other issues. Like the young evangelicals disagree with Obama on every other issue except climate change. There's no reality in which they would be in the same room as the lefty environmental activists. Now, these 120 incredible people are coming into the White House. And I noticed that there were 50 other people outside the White House gates with t-shirts from one of the lefty organizations. Uh, and they were holding up signs that were saying things like, Obama doesn't care about climate, shame on you, Obama. And I was like, where did these guys come from? Their two executive directors were invited to the meeting. So I pulled their two executive directors aside. Huh. and like, I said, I, I can't tell you what to do, nor would I ever, but I'm just curious, why are there 50 incredibly energetic young people protesting the president outside the, from your organization. And with no sense of irony, they just said, uh, well, we just wanted to make sure our voice is being heard. And I said, when you get invited to a meeting at the White House, your voice is being heard. Now, what I, what I was not allowed to say because of something called the Hatch Act that prevents um, uh, executive branch officials from uh, telling anyone to lobby members of Congress, what I couldn't say was, this is a missed opportunity. These young people have such incredible energy. They obviously think they're doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. But this climate change legislation is being blocked by a certain number of members of Congress. And what a shame that you didn't send those 50 young people 
to protest or meet with those members of Congress across the street or uh, across D.C. on Capitol Hill, right? Mm. I wasn't allowed to say that, but that story just reminds me of um, sometimes we we misdirect the best use of our resources at the right time. And so having validators from within and outside of the community who can sort of map it out and say, what's the best use of my time at this particular juncture? To be clear, sometimes it is to protest against the person who already agrees with you. And if this were the second term, I would imagine that that type of advocacy probably led to a lot of the executive action that Obama took on climate. Mm. But at that particular time, I think that it was those types of decisions that probably got in the way of a legislative climate solution because there just weren't enough votes on the Hill. So it's it's oftentimes even like, now imagine everything from, from uh, you know, the, the attacks on Asian Americans to uh, what's happening with our, our black brothers and sisters and the fact that we're showing up for each other, all of the rightful emotions that are heightened for conversations like that. It is really hard at times like that to say, where do I best put my energy? Right, because yeah. you're mad, understandably mad, and you just want to do something, and it's remembering that channeling that I think in the right place to have the best possible outcome is something that we still have to be mindful of as we move forward. It can't just be a, a one-time thing. You're so thoughtful, and I and I'm not again. This, I mean, my job obviously as as the podcast host is to uh, hype up the crap out of you. Uh, but but I <laughs> thank you. Buy the book. Buy the book. But but I am not. <laughs> I am not guessing you like I, I want more of you uh, in, in the world who in all the different ways use your privilege to get to people because there are certainly people who only listen to you because they know you as an actor um, who take it upon their own personal responsibility to actually study these things and, and talk intelligibly about these issues um, and ultimately to do something right. Obviously your uh, abilities and um, you know your network got you to work in the highest of places, but local board, right? Like, yeah, um, oh yeah, school board stuff. Just your local, you know, wherever you are. I, I think it's just a reminder that we should all start to get involved, um, particularly as Asian Americans, because I, I got a call from a person that I used to work with. She lives in Northern San Diego, um, yeah. upper upper middle class white plus Asians, right? Like that's sort of the demographic there. And yeah. she said, you know, out of nowhere, she said, hey, I just have something very curious about. I said, what's up? And she said, our school is 40% Asian from a student perspective. But when we look at parent involvement, they're nowhere to be found. What do we huh. do? And I said, well, first of all, don't make this a us versus them problem because yeah, that's yeah. literally what you, the white moms are, are doing. <laughs> right. Um, but it's also sort of like, how do we get involved? Because if you... Um, if you are you or me, right, in our generation that grew up here and English is, you know, language is not a problem. We have more privilege. We have time. We have resources like, but we still yeah. don't show up because that behavior wasn't modeled to us. Right. The PTA yeah. was not where the aunties went. It was where we went and interacted with the white moms. Right. Yeah. We, we would go to Boy Scouts or Little League or whatever. And it wasn't yeah. our dad's coaching. Right. And so right, how right. Do we, it, it, I think it's, on you know, my, my charge and my ask is like, get involved in that stuff. Yeah. Right. Like one, we're not too cool for shit. Right, just right. oh, for sure. Yo, that 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 is the number one. The the uh, and and I, I I totally understand why. I mean, I, I was on a, a a TV show in a public facing career when I took the sabbatical to work in DC. But the reality is, everybody I worked with at the White House, and you know some of them, they were taking leaves of absence from from their private sector careers too. Whether it was law school, I worked with a pediatrician. Mm -hmm. I worked with uh, you know uh, people who. Uh, who, who worked in, in academia. And it's not just at the White House. It's like, it's 
like you said, school board, it's city council, it's your community, it's your, your, your own local school coaching. All of that stuff has such a huge disproportionate impact. And it's the kind of stuff that makes a real difference. And it's so visible, right? So it, it changes hearts and minds in, in, in a lot of ways. And it's so important to do. And so, I mean, that's that's the charge, right? And I think if we want to, um, and there's so many different things to get mad about or to get hopeful about, however you want to look at what's happening in the world. But, you know, a lot of those decisions are made locally, right? We're talking about banning books. That's a yeah. local city school district yeah, yeah. decision. Right. So run for that, right? Um, yeah. And again, I think a part of like us, our parents wanting to be great means like there's a certain caliber of things that you should do. And if it falls below that, it's not important. And yeah. local elections, like if you're going to run for something, run for Congress, don't run for mayor. Well, <laughs> yeah. the mayor probably has more direct impact on the, the residents of that city than a congressperson ever would. A hundred percent. Yes. And so, you know, I that's what I want folks to be, you know, taking away from our conversation is that, you know, there are so many different ways to do this. But the important thing is that you do it and you don't need. And I think part of uh, your story sometimes can be taken away as like you were an A-list Hollywood person and you went to the White House. Like leave. Where do where do the rest of us fall? Right. Like, way to set the bar so high, Cal. But (laughs) but but at the same time, you've shown us that's possible. And therefore, everything below is more possible. And not only is that possible, but I, I just got a flag. I mean, the reason that I shared every turn of the story about getting that White House job is because it's less about, and I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll paraphrase and, and kind of ruin the punchline a little bit, but uh, the I had applied on a website um, <laughs> along with thousands of other people for, for a job in the administration. And I thought to myself, don't rock the boat by calling people who you worked with on the campaign. If you're qualified, somebody will reach out to you because you you submitted your resume. Um, now, for those of you who are more savvy than I, you already know that I was a huge idiot. And um, <laughs> the president-elect got wind of the fact that I had applied on a website. Actually, it was Michelle Obama who first uh, got wind that I had applied on the website. And she was so sort of horrified and not that amused, like disappointed almost, that she called uh, the president-elect over and asked me to repeat the absurdity of how I applied on the website without ever reaching out to anybody who I had worked with in real life uh, to say that I might want to be considered for a White House job. Now, the reason I tell that story in a lot of self-deprecating detail is, yes, it's a funny, ridiculous story. Yes, it involves the future leader of the free world. Uh, But ultimately, what that meant was I started working for the Obama campaign back when it was the same as what you might consider a small tech startup really only a couple hundred people working there. And imagine if you work for a small tech startup and in a matter of two years, that company got so big that it was dominating the tech industry and you wanted to continue working for that company once it was bought out by another company. Would you be stupid enough to only submit your resume to a website? (laughs) Or would you call your networks to say, hey, I am so passionate about the work we did together. I want to continue doing that work. If you didn't call your boss... If you didn't call your old boss to say that, the perception would be that you didn't actually care, right? And so I was dealing with a situation where the perception was, do you care enough or did you just check the box by submitting your website? And I was, what a lesson learned. And I thought that lesson could be useful for other folks. Many of us fall in between this line of, and we we sort of opened the conversation with this, this idea of imposter syndrome. Do I deserve to be in the room? Do I deserve to be part of this meeting? And then the counter to that is sometimes we have this angst of like, 
I have been doing this work and how come I haven't gotten promoted yet? And the reality sometimes rides between those two where it's like, yes, you deserve to be in the room and you can't expect to get promoted if you haven't made your voice heard in the way that it needs to be heard for folks to know that you want to be in the room, right? It's a whole skill that I certainly didn't have, but that's why I told all of the stories in, in the book because I just felt like there was a bigger takeaway than just working for, uh, for a president. You know, you wrote your book, I think, obviously, to tell your story, but I, and as you alluded to it, um, for, for many, it will be uh, a guidebook, a handbook on not, not to learn, you know, not, not to not repeat your mistakes, but just we're expected to thrive in an America that our parents had didn't even know, yeah. right? Um, intergenerationally, but also culturally, there was a tectonic shift. And so um, we need those of us to, to you know, uh, not only trailblaze, but then to tell the next person like, this is how you do it. And because yeah. we didn't have the kids club of the country clubs to learn these secrets from. And, and right. that's where I think each one of us that gets somewhere in life has to do that. Um, final question of, of the interview as, as we typically do in, in our fashion um, yeah. is the Dears and Americans letter. I started this show again for my daughter, but also all of us to, to share things and to say things to each other and to ourselves that uh, we didn't know was possible. And so I leave you full um, creative control in finishing the letter and to share with the audience anything inspirational, motivational, or sum up the one thing that you want to share by completing the letter, dear Asian Americans. Oh, man. Uh, in a way, I thought about this. Obviously, I'm familiar with your work, and I thought about this before we talked. <laughs> and I kind of thought like, well, I can, I literally, because I wrote this book for the 25 year old version of me. I literally feel like the whole thing, it would be like, if, if you sent me this letter in an email, I would attach the book. Like I would print it out and just mail you the book back because my story would not be possible without, like I said, the people who came before me, who've allowed me to do the work that I do. And it, it also makes me so happy when I see younger Asian Americans who are able to build on the work that many of us had had the privilege of doing with the support of the community. So I, I guess the, the, the thing that I would say is, you know what, here's what I'm going to, so, so obviously like that's a, that's a given, right? That I, that the book is for the collective us. And I hope that you read it, listen to it, enjoy it. The other part of that, I'll share a story I had asked. Um, so, or, or I had, I had uh, uh, had the chance to watch, there was a panel when I was in college, when I was at UCLA, um, or maybe it was just an interview. There was a woman who at the time was the only black actor on network TV. And uh, somebody had asked her, how do you deal with rejection? How do you deal with the, the fact that you go on auditions and you know that there will be times when you're not getting that job because of the color of your skin, because of what you look like? How do you go home at night? How do you deal with that? And my interest was glued to whatever her answer was going to be because those were my experiences at that point. That was around the time when we had the funny conversation about coming up with a screen name, about going out on auditions and realizing that the final callback was between me and a white boy in brown face. And so I was like at the edge of my seat. And she said, you know, I just, I have to go in there and I have to show them that I'm better than anybody else. And she outlined how I believe she had she had an MFA from Yale Drama School. She was classically trained as an actor in Shakespeare and, and all the classics. 
So when she went in for that audition, they would look at her resume. They would, they would watch her audition. And even if she didn't get the part, and especially if she didn't get the part because of her appearance, she knew that they knew why they were passing on her. And so she, she had chosen to take that approach to put her energy towards that because that was the one thing that she had control over. Mm. And obviously times have changed and technology's changed and, and thankfully industries have changed in ways where you can exercise more than that. But I took so much away from that because to me, it, it was a really short guide in how to take anger and channel it towards something that wasn't self-sabotaging. Because there were so many, there were so many times where I would self-sabotage, where I would go, this audition is going to be stereotypical. I'm never going to get this part if it's not stereotypical, because they're going to give it to some white boy from Iowa. Yeah. And I was realizing that I was doing this thing that was sabotaging my own opportunities. So hearing her just sort of walk through that very simple thing of like how to actually take that approach. So I would, I, I'm telling that story for the Dear Asian Americans letter, because I think I, I certainly learned from it. I hope people learn from it. And I'm thankful that we now live 20 years later in a society where that's not the only thing that you can do, but the idea that we can take our rage and channel it towards something that's helpful and useful for us and for folks in our community to me meant a lot. No, thank you. Um, and uh, please come back on the show. Cause I know you're I would love do wonderful to things. Yeah. Thanks. Jim. And uh, I, what I am most mad about from the book, I didn't even bring up because we would go <laughs> on a 30 minute tangent, which is yeah, sunny, sure. which is sunny side. Oh man. I, I yeah. got, I got feelings and opinions about that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. Um, Cause you're, <laughs> so anyway, uh, yeah. Google sunny side, NBC. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I thought it was the most wonderful name too. Cause uh, I went to high school in New York city um, and I'm familiar with the sunny side oh, right neighborhood. Okay. Yeah. Um, but way to go. Sunnyside has a uh, New York city councilwoman who's Korean American. Yes. Um, yeah. Who uh, I don't think we're related, but she's also one. Um, okay. <laughs> but I, I think we're supposed to be related, but we're not sure how the family yeah. tree spans out. But, yeah, yeah, um, right. but in any case, I mean, first of all, uh, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for coming and sharing your story. Uh, thank you for telling your story via the book that I, again, um, maybe, maybe it's different because uh, you've been storytelling for so long. But, you know, I, I think it does wonders to go to a local bookstore and see one of us um, with your face, with our last names, um, although Penn is not an Indian last name, <laughs> caveat there. Yeah, but yeah. you know, you know what I mean, right? Like for 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 kids mean, yeah. to go to their libraries and to their local Barnes and Nobles and to say, "Hey, I feel like I belong because yeah. my story is here." Um, and I, you have inspired so many more than you realize, and I, you you remain so humble um, in talking about the impact that you've had. But um, you've inspired me. Um, Thank you. you know, we, we talked about him a few times, but the person who gets the biggest shout out in your book is our mutual friend, Gary. And yeah. um, I mean, he speaks the world about you as well. And so um, and, and that's the highest honor, I think, because he's worked with you outside of the limelight of the public version of you. And so um, thank you. And however you continue to change the world, please do that. And um, just wishing you the best of of you and Josh and your parents and, and all the people that you care about, because you, you have made this world and at least this country uh, a little bit better. And I genuinely, genuinely mean that. Oh man. Thank you. That really, really means a lot to me for all of the reasons I'm feeling all the feels and thank you. And thanks for the, thanks for the platform that you, uh, that you give folks and, and for everything you do for the community. Awesome. Thanks everybody. Be well. Big shout out to Cal for joining us on the show. Uh, what a great conversation. Uh, just, I had a really great time and, um, you know, I'm just so excited, uh, that he can be 
an example for all of us to continue to do the work that we want to do, that we know we need to do, uh, whether it is after our day careers um, or taking a break from all that. So uh, thank you to Cal. Uh, again, big shout out to our mutual friend, Gary, for uh, making this happen and, and for doing so much great work as well. You can learn more all about Cal. Uh, I'll put the show notes. I'll put the links in the show notes where you can find Cal and learn more about him. Obviously, you can just Google Cal Penn and please do go get his book. You can't be serious out on paperback now. To learn more about us, you can go to DearsAmericans.com or at DearsAmericans on the Instagrams. Learn about me at JerryJuan.com or JerryJ1 on Instagram. Again, uh, got new branding, new excitement, launching a newsletter this week. Support our interns and support our work by buying some of the swag that we have at bit.ly slash DAA shop. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hope you are staying safe and healthy and cool, especially if you're on the East Coast as it's hot and wishing you all the best. I'm your host, Jerry Wan of Dears and Americans, and see you next time.